I took a little bit of a different tack this year when I was thinking about being uh, just a human in 2022 and really focused a lot more on the human side because we've solved a lot of the hard problems. But how to communicate, how to provide better experiences, to me, that's kind of the big story of 2022. Welcome to a special edition of Transform It Forward. I'm Paul French, and I have invited two industry luminaries to join me from Axway. The first is Brian Pagano, who is our chief catalyst. Hello, Brian. Hi, Paul. Good to be here. And Vince Padua, who is our chief technology and information officer. Hi, Vince. Hey, Paul. Hey, Brian. Thanks for having me. So the goal of today is every single company wants to have a Here's our pro, our forecast for the year, our you know our big thinking, and I think you know in a lot of cases there's some interesting directional things that we can learn from. I think in some cases there are some interesting opportunities to provide you know insights back to back to the business. I thought it might be interesting if we kind of react to some of those today. Some of them are really big and interesting. Some of them are a little bit like well, of course. And I thought we would start with one of those, of course. And, uh, and see what you guys think. This is from the CEO of a, a fairly large technology vendor whose hot take was CIOs must drive collaboration across business and IT teams to make work seamless. Brian, how innovative is that thought? <laughs> well, right. If we separate truth from innovation, it's, it, it is definitely true and has been true for many years, right? There's nothing particularly about this year that would make someone um, you know spout those those particular words this is this is a word this is a year where I think the predictions matter a lot more I know it's an annual game that we we do and all the pundits make the predictions and we all kind of you know critique each other and, and look for trends but if the last year proved anything it's acceleration of the rate of change there's always change but the, the rate of change, is accelerating this year the stakes are much higher to be catching the right waves to be noticing the the almost seismic level shifts that are happening underneath things and i think to kind of just make a safe bet and and talk about what has been true for 10 years or 20 years or 30 years is probably not the kind of useful advice that companies uh, need this year so true CIOs do need to make sure that departments are are working together and facilitate communication and 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 interwork, but that there's nothing there's nothing about the current moment that desperately needs that advice. And so, Vince, why does this one continue to show up on every single technology vendor's predictions every year for the last ten years? To Brian's point, I totally agree with Brian in that uh, I think it's true today as it's been true for you know decades prior uh, to this point. One maybe explanation or, or one data point to look at is, you know, the the analysts who who look at you know enterprise software, enterprise technology, and assess the size of budgets, their growth or contraction year over year, essentially point to the fact that you know you're not being given more money to spend on infrastructure uh, and technology, right? The the IT side of this particular equation. And so if you're not really able to invest significantly more, the question is, how do you become ultimately more productive? And I think one, one punchline is always collaboration, right? How do we bring 
you know, the, the IT sides and all of the infrastructure more aligned with the objectives, objectives that we're trying to drive for on, on the business side. And so with, with budgets, you know, sort of flat or, or only moderately increasing, as Brian pointed out, the rate of, of change and the stakes of competitive advantage, I think, are, are no, no higher today, uh, maybe than they have been due to all the change of the last, you know, 18 months or so through the pandemic. But I think that the, the challenge of if I'm not getting any more money, how do I get a better outcome? And I think one one obvious thing that we've been looking at for a long time is just how do we bring you know two different major personas in the business and IT closer together to to deliver something that is a positive and valuable to end users and end consumers. And so you know a lot of value has been created over the course of the last decade just to keep that same time scale. Lots lots more turnover is created. Lots of uh, GDP growth has been created. Where are those budgets going? It's not like margins have gone from, you know, net, net margins have gone from 10% to 90% because we've gotten so efficient. Where are the budgets being aligned now if they're not going to the CIOs? It's a good point. And, um, you know, one thing that, you know, we look at in trying to sort of understand the dynamics in the industry is, you know, through through collaboration or through more spending, you know, one thing we would like to to get to is is more output or, and more more productivity. And on a global scale, you know, when you look at non farm labor, i.e., people like me and you know Brian and, and you, Paul, uh, we fall in the non labor camp. And for most, for you know, compare like current decade versus previous decade, productivity is actually in decline. I.e., the amount of output produced uh, going into GDP for the United States or other countries is actually flat to in the decline. And yet, I agree with you, right? We are arguably now more productive today. We are now, you know, not just reaching people, you know, in our company and the customers that we're working with, but, you know, this podcast can reach people not just in the United States, but on a global scale, right? So the reach that we have today is far more significant than when it was uh, a decade ago. Yet, by, you know, all measures, Productivity and output is flat to declining. So to your question about like, where does it go? Uh, I think one aspect of this is automation, right? So we're moving, you know, some of what humans were doing before more into machines. And that has yet really not come out the other end in terms of uh, full scale productivity that uh, we can measure in terms of, let's say, non-farm labor. And the other part is through automation is also all the topics around, you know, how to use machines to mimic and or take on low-level tasks through machine learning and artificial intelligence and robotic uh, automation to either augment and or replace certain low-level tasks. And so I think the budget, certainly when we talk to customers, almost all of them are piloting and or in production with some form of artificial intelligence and machine learning technology. We all certainly leverage it uh, in our day-to-day lives. But I think some of that spending is, is shifting from the traditional ways in which software and, and technology has been deployed into, you know, sort of the emerging patterns and, and maybe what are, you know, to be the new platforms for the next decade, which will include things like AI and ML. And so, Brian, you know, it's, it's interesting, you know, collaboration can mean a lot of things to a lot of people. It could, could on the one hand, at the lowest level, to Vince's point, be, hey, can I have some of your money, right? But it also could be, okay, what are the experiences that you're willing to give on or that you're willing to invest in to decide what might be automated versus what do we need to continue to have humans be a part of? In some cases, automation may be a better experience. In some cases, as you know, the whole world got so excited about bots and things like that, 
maybe it was great for the first five seconds, but it loses its luster if you don't really have a clear idea of what you're trying to do. Yeah, there is, as you point out, there's a lot of different types of collaboration. And and as Vince mentioned, it really comes down to productivity, a word that gets misused a lot. People tend to, when you hear productivity, you tend to think efficiency, just crossing off a bunch of kind of meaningless items versus the real meaning, which is to produce something, right? And the value of that thing and the target are contextual. They depend on the organization, the region, the the vertical, but ultimately you want to produce something, your organization, your departments, you, you want them to do something. And so from that standpoint, whether it's automated, whether it's human, is is less important than the mission itself. And so it is true that the leaders need to be communicating internally and externally better. They need to figure out where those investments change. Like so from if you were an executive 10 years ago versus today, your communication costs and channels are completely different. As you well know, Paul, that since that's kind of your specialty, that there are now many more platforms, many more kinds of targeted messages that have to happen. And that absorbs cost and energy from the organization. People costs change, benefits, the the perk wars that are happening here in Silicon Valley, right? There's there's all kinds of things that both uh, distract from spend and distract the just the time and energy and possibly focus of an organization. But the word you hit on that I heard when you when you said it in all capital letters is experience. Because it does seem to be that the current battleground of most industries and most companies right now is around experience, both of the employees, the partners, and the customers. And so whatever they can do to organize themselves in a way to be productive in making a good experience in how easy it is to do business with you is probably the right way to spend your time and dollars. And frankly, almost any other thing you're spending money on is probably the wrong thing. Yeah, I think it's a great way to think about it. So continuing down the experience path, it's not just customer experience, it's it's also employee experience, right? And so another hot take is that you know, workflow and automation will take organizations from the great resignation to the great retention. Do you see that companies are actually prioritizing employee experiences and how they might, you know, use these productivity enhancements in order to make happier employees or just more efficient employees? You know, I, for a while, was very dubious about the uh, the great resignation. I thought it was just kind of the existing backlog of people who would have resigned during the course of, of the pandemic and, and just kind of resigning en masse at, at, at a certain point. But the numbers speak for themselves that this is a very, very real trend. And, you know, just in my own day-to-day job dealing with customers, uh, sometimes customers actually have a strategy are interested in doing the right thing, moving forward on modernizing, on innovating, but they're having a little trouble getting the personnel to do it. And this is the first time in my career that I've really had this issue. But yeah, yeah, Brian, what you're saying makes perfect sense. We want to go forward, but we, you know, we need to hire some people to do that. So, you know, talking to some employers out here and and around the world, I know for sure that employee retention is a huge, huge priority that again, two years ago probably wouldn't have shown up in the top three. Of course, it's always nice to retain your your employees, but it wasn't it wasn't such a pressing problem. Now, I, I think the Great Resignation is just one visible, tangible point of this multi headed beast that is the change that the seismic changes that are happening right now that also include 
different kinds of currency and different kinds of trust and different kinds of networks and how we transact with the businesses, self-service. There's, there's like a whole bunch of things here connected that I think spell the probably some of the biggest changes to the environment that we're going to be living in and doing business in that, that I've seen in my, in my career. But I can tell you that, yes, the simple answer to your question is companies are taking this retention very, very seriously. The question is, they don't have a lot of experience in having to fight this battle. So just ordering somewhat nicer office furniture, for example, or introducing some kind of perk often leads to more of a sense of entitlement than it does a sense of loyalty or retention. So I think, yes, it's at top of mind, but I don't think the battle is being fought well yet. And Vince, you could look at the the retention piece on the flip side as well. You think about people that have heritage systems that have people that have been working on them for years and now they're, you know, frankly aging out or, you know, looking at uh, opportunities that don't involve technology that may be, you know, less cool than the things that we're begging people to get excited about today. So how do you take that to the next logical conclusion, right? It's not enough just to make the existing customers happy, company happy, employees happy. You also have to look for automation and productivity opportunity to replace capacity that may be walking out the door that you may be maybe difficult to to refill. You know, to, to dovetail on what, you know, Brian had mentioned, because the stakes are are so high in terms of, you know, innovation, uh, growth, and sort of the ongoing sort of, you know, digitization of all of our uh, experiences, whether it's in a, you know, consumer experience or an enterprise experience, you know, I think part of the the great resignation and retention challenge is also the fact that there is just a, a shortage of available talent to address just the part of the industry that is growing and evolving so rapidly, whether that is like cloud and hybrid and AIML, and then all the work that's happening in crypto, all the sort of realignments of, of B2B supply chains and ecosystems, all of the digital players now in, in finance and in healthcare, et cetera. All of that is now mostly let's call it quote unquote new tech. And because it is evolving so quickly, there is whether, you know, here at Axway or any customer that I speak to or any headhunter who reaches out to me would say that for the most part, enterprises of any size and shape, whether you are the largest tech firm uh, on the planet, you're a relatively successful healthcare company or a midsize uh, software company. They're all struggling for talent that can solve major problems uh, in some of the domains that I mentioned. And so I think that is part of what helps open the door for the great resignation, meaning if you have significant skills, right, uh, in a market where there's incredibly high demand, then obviously competition for said skills goes up. And obviously the favor is now in the employee's hands, not so much in the employer's hands. And then on the other side of, uh, to your point, right, around technology and assets and, and business processes that have been around for decades, right? And we have customers that have been with us for decades that operate uh, some of the most sophisticated and complex, you know, financial ecosystems, uh, healthcare ecosystems, automotive ecosystems, et cetera, that were, you know, built on technology that maybe can't deliver the customer experience that we were talking about earlier, given the assets that they've been investing in for the last, you know, two decades. And what we know is that some of the, the, the resources and the folks that have been doing this for you know, 20 or 30 years 
are beginning to, as part of the great resignation is also the great retirement, right? Is the desire to say, well, you know what, I'm kind of done doing this now. I don't necessarily want to go out and, and learn the new skills and continue working for another you know, decade or two. I'd rather just take what I have, slip into the nice warm bath and enjoy retirement, right? There's got to be a better metaphor for that, by the way, but, but please continue. <laughs> yeah. But, um, you know, for, for vendors like us, right, who, who have products that are, are serving, you know, core workloads, uh, core infrastructure, core banking, core healthcare, et cetera, you know, part of our opportunity and part of our challenge is, is how do we help certainly those customers modernize the existing assets, uh, bring them into the current day to make them more productive, i.e. how do we create leverage with their existing assets to create more output and more productivity that makes them more competitive, that helps them deliver a better customer experience, and then hopefully in that transition, put them on a platform that is more scalable for what we expect the next decade to be, which is going to be more cloud, you know, more APIs, more hybrid, more automation, you know, more of all the other things that we've talked about. But it really is incumbent, I think, on the vendors who are there because when you power some of the most you know, expansive and critical uh, ecosystems, whether it's in retail or finance, et cetera, you know, those things aren't disappearing, right? For, for the folks that own those ecosystems, they are competitive moats. They are a competitive advantage. And so our opportunity with them to deliver better experiences, we need to modernize them, bring them to today and, and give them a place where they can go for the next uh, 10 years and beyond. Yeah. So the answer in a lot of these, it all kind of paths back to a single point, whether you're trying to um, prepare for people who are leaving, whether that is because they think they can get a better deal or, or they're ready for the bath, to your metaphor, or to try to insulate some of the older systems that can't deliver on the customer experience. Like that, All these roads lead to, well, how do you better normalize your technology and give you a way forward? Enter APIs. And APIs aren't new. And They've been going on uh, and have been invested in for a long time. But here's another hot take, according to the industry. The API economy will continue its rapid growth. So it's just the tip of the iceberg, even though it's becoming more and more important for everything that people do. Brian, how do people now rationalize a move from what was the, wouldn't it be great if we could expose some APIs to how do we turn APIs into actual business outcomes that people want to pay money for and customers want to invest in? That's really the point, right? That nobody's ever made a single dollar off of exposing things. You, you don't make any money from that. Uh, taking complicated, complicated things and moving them forward in the architecture don't make them any less complicated or any more consumable. And you know, doing the kitchen sink method, where you just expose everything in the kitchen sink and magic will happen. You know, if you build it, they will come. Anti pattern just doesn't work. And so the idea I think you hit on there was that there has to be there has to be some value. In fact, Vince's earlier comment on productivity, you have to produce something. Right? You're, there's a reason why a partner or a developer or a customer is coming to your business to do business with you. You, you need to be laser focused on, on what that is. And that's your API, right? Your API should be designed like, like a physical product is designed to look good, to be simple. To have that affordance immediately, like, oh, I see how I'm supposed to use this. I see, I see how I can get value from this right away. I don't need to read a, a complicated 200-page manual to, you know, to learn how to use my new car or whatever. It's, it's very obvious how I'm supposed to use this. That's one of the powers that APIs give you. It's kind of a, a lingua franca 
that it doesn't depend on a particular technology or a particular programming language or you know the the experience of a particular development team at a partner or or at a third party developer as long as you've designed it right with really really good design for consumability then yes then APIs are basically your open for for business sign and the other magic that APIs do is to decouple right they've always had to de- decouple all the complicated crap that's on the back end from the presentation tier from how things are going to be consumed and we're seeing other technologies come out now that start to do some similar things but APIs tend to be the most mature, the most clear and present. The market is very mature. There's some very good tools out there to, to support you in APIs, and that's where people get started. But that's it's kind of like the entry, the, the gateway into this decoupling thinking of rather than trying to predict the future, which is a stupid game to be in, even for people like us who make yearly predictions on, on technology, and instead say, how can I be nimble? How can I be able to move faster whenever the next crazy disruption happens, whenever the next crazy great resignation or whatever it is that I need to be ready for, pandemics or everyone's at home, so I need to handle remote transactions. You know, I don't need to predict that that change or disruption is coming. I need to be ready to n- when a disruption happens, right? It's, it's not my job to be right about the exact change or disruption that's going to happen. It is my job to make sure that the organization and our technology is ready to move when the inevitable disruption happens. And so Vince, you know, if the prevailing in CIOs are going that direction is more business focused CIOs, less people who, you know, were born of the the technology infrastructure like you and Brian, what should that prediction be then? Hey, you've got, you've already got some API infrastructure, but you got to, you need a better way to do it. What, what would be the right way to position that to that business focused CIO? I think I would connect it back to the experience point that we've made so far, you know, in the discussion. One way that I, I think about the API economy or the, the concept of it is that, you know, they're essentially, you know, a programmatic interface for business functions. Meaning that to, to Brian's comment about lingua franca, right? So so my enterprise, you know, has a bunch of technology and uh, we offer a set of business functions. And because your technology may not be my technology or the way I have you know data stored may not be the way that you have data stored, we're gonna create this this interface, this programmatic interface that represents a business function that I'm offering you for you to use and ultimately consume that lingua franca uh, concept. And what I think CIOs and, and enterprises and customers that we have spoken to, and, and I'm sure Brian can tell no end of stories in his work, is you know we come across an enterprise uh, who has come to us and said, I need help on my API journey and my API strategy. And we say, great, wonderful, you know, tell us what you've been up to so far. And they'll tell us about you know, two quarters ago, our board mandated that we needed 100 APIs you know, by the end of the year. And so you had a bunch of teams run out and generate and, and create a bunch of APIs and they put them in a portal and they said, you know, we built it, uh, now come and use it. And the, the reality is, is that almost all of those APIs look like just an internal sort of, uh, you know, technical uh, implementation or a technical interface to a, a feature or a capability, not a business process or ultimately an outcome that a customer is trying to do. So an outcome could be, 
you know, an aggregation of bank accounts, or it could be, I want to be able to, let's say, you know, print and send physical email, or it could be, I want to do the same with text and digital uh, email. I want to do a background check, right? Well, all those scenarios that I just gave are now companies, right? It's, it's Twilio, it's Okta, it's Stripe, uh, it's Plaid. And they didn't just run out and say, hey, I want some to deliver some APIs. They said, I believe there is a, a business function that if I can create the lingua franca interface for it, that I can abstract away all this sort of massive complexity. I mean, when we look at banking and the payment system, I mean, it's probably the most complex set of technology and regulations that have been around for decades. And for a vendor to come in and say, we're going to abstract away all of that and just offer you a, a well-designed, beautiful interface to business functions that you can aggregate and remix Right, you can you can uh, you can bundle all this stuff up to an outcome and a great experience. Then you know have at it. And so you know my advice to CIOs is to think about the experience first. Think about you know the business function that you're trying to deliver, and then work backwards into what is the actual you know APIs set of APIs that you need to bring together to deliver against that stated value proposition. Because if you go the other way around, which is we need APIs. Our experience, my experience has been almost all of those fail, and they fail relatively quickly. So as we think about some of the areas where that kind of leads us to, right, is now more and more people are thinking about this this more experience-based approach. It requires more services. It requires more processing power. It generates way more data. It, it, it creates uh, an environment where what they've been doing for a long time doesn't quite work as well. And as much as cloud's been around a long time, um, it's still a very small part of the overall workload. How does this hot take approach, uh, you guys? How do you how do you address this? Is that IT will have a bigger headache in twenty twenty two as a result of multi cloud? Brian, how do you see multi cloud as a place uh, that people have to really start to think about? Well, I think multi cloud is the reality. Hybrid multi cloud meaning you still have a little bit on premises cuz unless you're Amazon or Google, basically every other company in the world is hybrid and multi cloud or a lot on premises, right? You yeah. still have to think of a lot of a lot of businesses um are just now, you know, certainly late to the party in adopting it, but but certainly don't have the bulk of what they're trying to accomplish in the cloud. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's a good point. And so the result is that almost every company has this hybrid situation where you have some things wherever you are in that spectrum on premises you pretty much every company has some things running in the cloud right some workloads of some kind running in the cloud and frankly that's the only way to interface with many of the latest technologies and, and services that are out there and again unless you are one of the massive cloud providers you have some of your stuff running on cloud a and cloud b and cloud c and so it is a real problem because I, I think it is the reality for almost every single company right now. Again, it's not necessarily new about 2022, right? That, that hasn't changed. This, there have been multiple cloud providers and all the latest technologies and services are generally cloud-based nowadays. So if you want to use them, you need to be at least partly in the cloud that companies are slowly moving workloads and slowly as the normal lifespan of an enterprise technology it reaches the point where you're going to make a decision about maintaining it, rewriting it, modernizing it, doing something with it. A lot of those decisions are now made 
to move them into the cloud. So that, I mean, that that's continuing. So, so the cloud is critical. I don't want to confuse, you know, the, the cloud is critical, but I think that it can be a bit of a red herring. Like if, if you think that moving old stuff to the cloud makes you competitive in these new markets, in this new remote transaction, self-service experience-based world we have, you're just doing old things in new places. And you will get the security and the economy of scale and all the other things that, you know, the, the, the elasticity that the cloud brings you, but you're still essentially just comfortable with yesterday. So you're trying to make everything as much like yesterday as possible when, you know, you should be preparing to do business today. So how, how are you going to commit today? And, and what are the changes that are likely to come out tomorrow? So that's my only point. Cloud is absolutely critical. It is a real headache. It is a new muscle memory that has to be learned for companies. But if you think that the battle is about cl- cloud is just a supporting technology here so that you can produce and provide a good experience. And so as Vince mentioned, so that you can achieve some kind of business outcome. I can't think of a business who would stand up at their quarterly earnings report and say, yeah, we added 100 new APIs. That's what our customers were demanding. We just want more APIs exposed. Like nobody benefits from that. But the idea that we put a new front door on our business that happens to reside in the cloud, and now we can provide some kind of new business outcome, some new benefits to our, our constituents, that's the game. That's what's happening. Now, the question of, you know, would you rent bulldozers right now and dig your own data center if in in 2022 right now i think you'd have to be pretty crazy to do that when the cloud providers are so good at what they do i think it's a natural for any industry even the ones who are regulated and have security concerns to be moving up to the cloud well and i think everything that you say is true it's funny it somebody once described to me that if you just do it the old way in the cloud it's just your mess for less and I think over the long term, it's not even really less. But companies really are looking at this hybrid. Vince mentioned it earlier as well. And then in this multi-cloud world where where they're making choices based on the app or based on the data or based on a particular processing profile, you know, Vince, there, there's an awful lot of unintended consequences that come from that. What should CIOs do when they are starting to look at this natural expansion uh, into multiple clouds for multiple regions? So one thing I just want to comment on, because I, I had seen a, uh, a piece of data that uh, IDC, an analyst firm that, that watches the space, had that does sort of uh, budget profile spending in the IT sector. And they their assessment is that cloud spending is still at roughly 6% of total IT spending, which to me seems absolutely impossible <laughs> that we're only at, at 6% given how much we talk about cloud. Now, you could argue, well, that's because the cloud, like you said, is it's, you know, either your mess for less or, um, you know, the same thing that you had before, but now it's vendor managed and you're getting it for a lower cost. Thus, the spending is a much lower share of total IT. But regardless, 6% of total IT spending on cloud seems low. I do believe that we are still in the early days of, of cloud, hybrid cloud and, uh, and multi-cloud. And now start to answer your question. Actually, I don't think of it as a headache. I actually think of it as something between a hangover, which could be a headache, and indigestion, right? And indigestion is kind of like we have, you know, enterprises today, including Axway, right? I mean, we have so much choice, right, between what you get with vendor A versus vendor B versus vendor C versus what I can do arguably on my own. And that choice, it can cause a headache. 
And if you run multiple pilots on different clouds, it can cause indigestion. Trying to figure out what exactly is or is not going to work for your business, whether that is, does it just simply work, right? Is the service uh, I'm using or consuming, whether it's just raw compute or raw storage, or maybe it's something a bit more sophisticated, like a a file transfer service or a, a speech to text type service or what have you. You know, trying all these different pilots, you know, maybe I'm running around now trying to figure out Kubernetes and uh, I've got, you know, four different vendors, uh, all mega cloud vendors telling me that theirs is the best way to go do it. So ultimately, how do you pick? I think it's we see some customers uh, who simply decide strategically like this is the cloud that I'm betting on. This is where I'm going to build my resources. This is what I'm going to hire for. This is what I'm going to train for. And essentially, I'm all in. Right now, that may may work. Um, if you aren't so globally distributed and it may work if uh, you feel like what they provide you can line up with your long-term architectural and technology roadmap that is necessary. But a lot of customers, the majority of the customers that we see uh, are in a hybrid model, are in a sort of multi-cloud, you know, multi-SaaS type model. And in many ways, it's in part because all of these applications that are in the cloud, whether the SaaS or, or running sort of in a, a vendor managed cloud that maybe was yours, but is now, you know, in a mega cloud someplace else, almost all of them now are being expressed and opened up with via APIs. So another topic that we, we spoke about a little bit ago, right? And that exposure and that set of interfaces now offers you the ability to say, I'm going to sort of pick the, the best of breed in terms of runtime, storage, networking, and security for that particular application. But if I want to sort of remix and bundle or even unbundle on top of that, as long as I have the, the requisite you know, accessibility via a lingua franca interface, a set of APIs, uh, a common way of thinking about a command line interface, and essentially a way to, to drive process automation across all of them, then I can remix and build on top, right? So I, I don't have to pick one today because we know that if you pick one today, it may be a very different story in two or three years. But the more you build applications on that infrastructure, the more data that you create, well, then the gravity makes it very hard to get off of it, right? And so the majority of the customers that I see and that I speak to, they're going multi-cloud so that they continue to have that choice. And where they're investing a lot of time and resources is really on a lot of that sort of API design, uh, API development, process and automation development, such that regardless of where these applications sit in different countries or in different clouds, they can still continue to to grow and be innovative without having to bet everything uh, on one particular uh, cloud vendor or cloud stack. So you mentioned the big uh, the the data, right? And one of the benefits is now you're you're creating and capturing so much more data than you had at every single level, and that you know gives gives rise to with with the massive amount of processing power that's available um, to artificial intelligence and ML, right? And so. We talked about automation. We talked about, you know, accessing things across multiple places and all the different data. What is the hot take that we should be looking at for AI and ML in 2022? Gosh, I don't know that I have a compelling uh, hot take other than it's everywhere, right? I mean, I I don't know that uh, a part of your digital life today isn't being touched by some form of artificial intelligence and, and machine learning, whether it's on your mobile device, whether it's in enterprise application. Whether it's, uh, you know, you're scanning in, you know, a, a receipt to apply to uh, an expense report, it's virtually everywhere, right? One area that I think is is interesting and, you know, we continue to see more and more investment by our customers 
as well as by you know folks uh, within the industry is you know how are you applying let's say machine learning to augment more and more of the the b2b style interactions right so how do you better process uh, an invoice right how do you be uh, more predictive about you know when you know your inventory will be out of stock uh, more predictive of when a product or, or good will be ultimately uh, delivered those are more difficult not because the tech itself is more difficult but because the complexity of the ecosystem i.e. you're not an island right you're not just looking at vince's email coming in and trying to detect spam but you're now looking at multiple enterprises that are being orchestrated to deliver a product right or to manufacture a product or to detect fraud right so when you have now multiple businesses uh, multiple data sets now and multiple clouds across many industries that are regulated in different ways that becomes very difficult to apply enough machine learning at scale to to have either to detect the anomaly to detect the fraud to detect the outage to provide a predictive alert etc because of the last you know 18 months to 2 years as ecosystems and supply chains are being redrawn as there's been this sort of great shakeup across all the industries uh, around how they operate and, and more towards a customer experience and digital experience uh, inevitably how do we scale that that is running some is running on legacy technology some is running on on modern technology and some is running on arguably cutting edge uh, technology right how do you bring that together and drive machine learning i think we're seeing more and more of that now being invested into the business to business world given sort of all the disruptions and the need for a better experience uh, that we've already talked about and Brian, almost every one of those, I mean, Vince closed with the experience was uh, experience related. Here's where your package is. Here's when that widget will be in stock. Here is, you know, how I shorten the path to a particular, you know, business action. You are a, a counselor to boards of directors and senior level people inside IT and out. Are they looking at it from that perspective and saying, okay, we got to find some money to go invest in, you know, a better way to do Siri or or something like that in order to drive those experiences? Or is there a little jaundice to, yeah, that, that sounds like it would be cute for, you know, where's my package, but I don't see how it works in terms of my overall enterprise delivery. Unfortunately, it's kind of the latter. As is always the case, let's be honest, it's whenever there's these new emerging trends and technologies, they're always seen as a fad. Every disruption in history has been initially looked at as a fad right? That, this will never catch on. I'm sure if you owned a radio store and the time TV was invented, you were, you know, chuckling, pointing at these, these guys across the street saying, you know, well, you know, what a fad. This is, this is never going to catch on. But, you know, that sometimes should be a, a warning bell to us that we are, as humans, we are very prone to these kind of cognitive biases. Like, for instance, when I'm talking to the executives, you're right, they're gathering a lot more data and they're very proud of their big data programs and this and that. And I, but I think that's the collector's fallacy. Right? Like everybody's old Evernote from years ago. Like I've got 50,000 notes in there that I've never looked at twice and are just taking up space and I'm just paying for storage. Like big data is more of a problem than a solution. Like these things only have value if you get insight out of it, which I, I think is where you're going. So the executives that I'm talking to understand that it is much more a battle about experience now than it ever has been. That the human side, their their own employees, their partners and their customers are voting a lot more seriously with their dollars, with their loyalty than, than they have in the past. And that these kinds of relationships are, are changing. The power dynamics are changing suddenly. So they're aware of that and they know that they need to focus on experience, but 
that's not a problem that they've had to solve in the past. The muscle memory isn't there. So like you mentioned, Paul, they look at these things as being toys or novelties when in fact they're not putting themselves into the mind, the experience of their customers thinking, well, how is the customer living their daily life? What, like, what does the customer think is useful and not just a gimmick or a novelty? Like, how does the customer want to interact with me versus how I'm going to force them to interact with me, which is the old enterprise IT model where the monopoly will dictate how things get done. And to your point, like the companies, I, I remember in the early days of Amazon, like everyone was just predicting they were going to go under, you know, like everybody else. And and I think one of the fundamental differences between their model and other retailers that I shop at, we all shop at dozens and dozens of online you know, e-commerce sites, is that most of those sites consider the transaction to be finished when they have my credit card. Right? When, they've, when they've rung up the transaction, it's, it's done. Amazon considers the transaction finished when I have received my product and I'm happy with it. And that seems like such a subtle difference, but like it, it's not even completely a technology difference, right? They use technology to track that, to get my feedback, to, to look for trends and patterns. And I, and I think that's where the AI and ML come in is not if you use it as a novelty, not as a, as a, as a main ingredient unto itself, but to find those indirect correlations that humans are not good at finding, find those indirect correlations that point to a truly completed transaction and a satisfied customer. That's kind of my job right now, providing corporate level therapy to these executives is to see that these are not toys. They're just ingredients to providing the critical experience that needs to happen. It's funny that you use, you know, fad and novelty in, in that particular context, because the AI and the ML pieces is so much further along than this next one, Web3. And everyone's trying to figure out what a cool idea it would be to use the blockchain and to build on Ethereum and to to deal with NFTs and things like that. But I, I think I think people don't really understand how they're going to figure it out, let alone what value is actually going to be created, although the promise for a creator seems really, really interesting. Vince, have you seen any use cases that make sense for, for customers to be you know, or, or, or those that are a little bit farther down the path for 2022 that are Web3 related? The one that comes to mind that, uh, you know, for those that are, are listening to this and maybe know a little bit about Axway and, and think about, you know, whether it's your personal life or your business life and, and all the files that uh, you may generate or the files that you may use to, you know, I don't know, sign, sign a document and for your mortgage or something else. There's an interesting solution out there called Filecoin, uh, Filecoin.io, which I think is a really interesting sort of decentralized blockchain-based uh, way of doing, you know, shared storage, uh, shared repositories, and, and ultimately uh, uh, file sharing uh, itself, uh, which I think is is relatively unique and interesting. It's it's something that's you know unlike a lot of what we hear about regarding, let's say, you know, Web three and uh, a lot of the the crypto uh, discussions particularly around the currency aspects of it with, you know, Bitcoin and Ethereum. Uh, but Filecoin, both at an enterprise level, because, you know, essentially businesses, you know, in a B2B fashion, the way they they interact with each other, you know, before they use phones, and then they use faxes, and then they use email. Uh, now they automate that with uh, sharing files to do, you know, invoicing and, and payments and, and whatnot. And a technology like Filecoin or decentralized file sharing uh, is an interesting, you know, approach to trying to look at this problem from a different lens. 
to do so in a way that's not aggregated or centralized, but done more in a decentralized fashion. So Web3-ish or within the Web3 realm, uh, crypto realm, but not currency-based. That's interesting. And so you see the future, maybe for either of you guys, you know, we're a ways away from, you know, smart contracts at scale, or is that something that people are really going to start to try and figure out this year? Because, you know, once, once the, the scalability of Ethereum starts to get to that next level, it is something that people are going to want to do to, to get fully distributed in those kind of examples. So my hot take or my personal view of this is, you know, I'm long, you know, smart contracts, or I'm long, you know, decentralized applications. Today, in many ways, uh, to, to slightly say something different than what Brian said, right? It, it looks like a toy right now because there's not really uh, an enterprise workload that uh, really any of us can, can currently point to to say, look, you know, it works uh, at scale. It's it's highly secure. It's incredibly performant. And you get 10x the value uh, with it uh, than you do with the, the current you know, state of the art. That said, you know, like all things, right? It's a toy until it's not. And uh, I, I think this technology... There's still a lot to be done on the whole stack of it, obviously improving sort of the processing and the fee structure and everything else that comes along with it. But, you know, when you look at sort of the distribution of where venture capitalists and, and private equity firms are putting money, a, a lot of it, a majority of it is going into these topics. And so it seems like the investment is there globally. A whole lot of smart people uh, at a university level and and uh, and whatnot are spending their time uh, focusing on it. I think the the majority of startups are, are now all in these spaces. And so I tend to believe that the wind is now at their back, but it will look like a toy until it's not. Yeah. And if you if you believe Jack Dorsey, it's going to be owned all by Anderson Horowitz at some point in time That's anyway. Right. So it doesn't matter. So you guys have been incredibly generous with your time. I will um, open it up to each of you for what is your prediction for the year. Brian, we can start with you. Yeah, I uh, I took a little bit of a different tack this year when I was thinking about the trends, the current context of, of business and being uh, just a human in 2022 and really focused a lot more on the human side is how, how does the technology, not for technology's sake, because we've solved a lot of the hard problems, a lot of the you know scale and processing power, like most companies, that's not their limiting factor right now. They, they don't have enough storage, they don't have enough bandwidth, like that's, that's mostly solvable. But how to communicate how to provide better experiences, how to compete against entities that look different than the entities you're used to competing against. To me, that's kind of the big story of 2022. If we combine your previous question about some of the Web 3.0 stuff, as Vince mentioned, that still looks like a toy to most people, and we combine that with, say, the Great Resignation, which we've all acknowledged as a, as a pretty important trend, well, suddenly you've got a lot of smaller entities. You've got individual consultants and contractors, one-person shops, five-person shops, and we need a way to make contracts between these people. We need a way to do business and to transfer files and data and currency and, you know, whether it's like, I'll probably mess up the names here, but I think it's Render that does the, you know, GPU rendering as a token or Fetch that does like AI and bots as, as a token. Like there, there are ways to, to do interchange amongst these many smaller entities, right? Traditionally in the 20th century, business was between one or two big parties, one or two big entities. And the fact that it's now being fractured, I think really changes the dynamics, really changes the, the playing field. So yeah, it's a toy till it's not. And you know, it's looking like that, that shift can come very quickly. If I were coaching, and I do, that's my job, uh, coaching executives, I say like, Every moment you're not focusing on experience, every dollar you're not focusing on experience right now, 
and just becoming more able to deal with tomorrow's context instead of trying to recapture yesterday is just it's just wasted time. Like you're just like all this stuff to check things off of a list and say we modernized XYZ. That's great. You know, you, the lights need to stay green and the lights need to stay on, but you're not actually making yourself competitive. You know, I think I think we've lost touch with where the customers are because the customers have shifted very suddenly. So I, I get excited about this stuff. So I, I hope that made some kind of sense. But I do think the human factor, like the the migrating workforces, the multiple small parties, the way that people want to do remote transactions and self-service, the experience necessary, the communication necessary, the channels, it's it's a very human shifting factor for technology folks, which is generally not what we've had to deal with over the decades. Uh, I'll take the other side and move away from the experience, although we, we can connect it back to the experience. And I'll recognize that we're already, you know, five weeks into 2022. So my my answer is is a bit biased by the signal I've already been given <laughs> so far this year by by customers and you know user groups and, and whatnot. But I think a topic that will be very top of mind this year is cybersecurity, and that seems a little you know I don't know on the nose, right? I mean, security is always uh, a top priority for for any you know enterprise of of any sort of scale. But I think there's a, a few winds that are sort of pushing uh, this direction where there's going to be a revamping of a lot of enterprises' focus on cybersecurity. Uh, certainly, you know, we've I've already mentioned the idea that, you know, supply chains are being, you know, realigned uh, and redrawn due to these sort of, you know, experience uh, and modernization demands that are out there. And, and with that sort of modernization and the redrawing of said supply chains is, you know, how are we going to ultimately, you know, secure it? There is, you know, survey data that tells us that the the single most uh, concerning, you know, node uh, in a security strategy by enterprises is who are they partnering with, right? Is is the small and medium sized business that I'm working with, you know, really secure? Is the data that I'm receiving from them, you know, accurate, or is it being, you know, some form of injection and uh, fraud being applied to information that I'm being handed, right? So as we go through sort of this this changing of supply chains to deliver a better experience. And to be more innovative, it will also include with that a, I think, a rethinking of of our approach to cybersecurity. Most notably, uh, a topic that is underneath there that I'm most interested in, and I think we'll also get a lot of uh, discussion this year, is zero trust. And one reason, and it may only be a, a U.S. statement, but uh, the U.S. government a couple of weeks ago uh, released a new memo and a set of 19 directives around how the U.S. government agencies would all need to take on a zero trust architecture and posture by 2024. And so I think this year will create a host of conversations around what that means uh, with respect to zero trust. For those of you listening and you want to go take a look at the memo, uh, I will tell you that I, I do think it is uh, an incredibly innovative approach that the U.S. government is taking. I know that seems uh, almost oxymoronic that uh, the U.S. government is taking an innovative approach to cybersecurity, but it is. There's a lot of really uh, cutting edge things that they are mandating and requiring. And so I think, you know, zero trust, uh, a realignment of supply chains will have a real focus on cybersecurity this year. It may be a lot of conversation, but I think it will also set up a new strategy and a movement of budget and, and skills that will bleed into the latter part of this year and then into 2023. Boy, John Kinderbag and Chase Cunningham, a couple of uh, old friends and analysts and guys that have been screaming about Zero trust for about eight years are thrilled to hear you say that because I, I completely agree. I think it's a it is the way forward to try and protect uh, the battle space when you think about cybersecurity. And I'll tell you, my uh, 
Mine is this, and it's not necessarily a hot take for any one particular year, but but as we we do the research and we have these kind of conversations and we talk to customers, if you're on a path to some level of transformation, it doesn't matter what you do in terms of the technologies that you choose if you're not really, really, really clear in understanding about how you're going to deal with the change management with your employees and your partners and your customers, how you're going to deal with the culture inside your business and getting people to join the movement in order to make that trans transition and to know that whatever transition you attempt to do needs to be based on uh, the customer experience and the customer behavior that you're trying to support. And with that, I will thank you all for joining this special edition of Transform It Forward. We'll hope to talk to you again soon. It was great chatting with Vince and Brian about what's on the horizon for 2022 for tech, finance. It's given me a lot to think about, but here are some of the key insights that stood out to me from that episode. Number one, here's another hot take. Change is the only constant. The rate of change has been accelerating recently. So in 2022, we can expect to see more revolutions happening across industries. Stakes are higher than ever before. So staying agile and adaptable to change will be crucial, no matter your role, function, or industry. Second, although our reach is broader than ever before, productivity has actually been declining steadily in recent years. And frankly, people are expensive and technology is cheap. In the future, AI, machine learning, and automation will continue to play an increasingly crucial role in our society. And as a result, we'll continue to see companies investing in automation to replace or augment low-level tasks in 2022. Third, one of the key words in 2022 will be experience. Due to the rapid pace of digital evolution, enterprises of all shapes and sizes are struggling to attract and retain skilled talent. With the great resignation and the great retirement, companies are increasingly focused on retaining talent by prioritizing the overall employee experience. Fourth, the API economy will continue its rapid growth in 2022. The challenge will be designing APIs in a consumer-friendly, understandable format. We all learned, being nimble enough to change quickly and effectively in the face of disruption that will inevitably hit us in the future will be key. And if you're a CIO, consider the business focus and the function first, especially when it comes to APIs. And fifth, our digital lives today are completely intertwined with AI. In 2022, we'll continue to see more investment in the application of machine learning to augment B2B interactions, such as processing Thanks for listening invoices, to Transform It Forward, inventory the podcast that gives you an inside look into some of the world's most effective transformation processes. The great if you like this episode, please be sure to give us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Transform It Forward is brought to you by Axway who believes that in order to create the most value for customers, partners, and employees, you need to open everything by securely integrating and moving data across a complex world of old and new technologies.